So our Bible reading today is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 29. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the sudden man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He said. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son, who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. It, he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running to, to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, 
I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out by prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ben, for reading so well. Very good morning. My name is John Forsyth. I have the great privilege of being the vicar at St. Jude's. Uh, and a very warm welcome to you if this is your first time with us here at Parkville. Uh, I'm not at Parkville as much as I would like to be, uh, but it is always a great joy to come and particularly open God's Word with you as we begin a new series looking at Mark's Gospel. And when I say new series, it's really season two <laughs> of a series we did last year. Uh, you know, when you're watching Netflix and you finish season one and you're left on a cliffhanger, that was last year, this year we've come back. And what they often do when they start series two is give you a bit of a recap previously in Mark's gospel. <laughs> uh, and so I, I will do that perhaps with less uh, drama, uh, but certainly just to give us a, an understanding of how we got to chapter nine, because it's really important to understand the context of God's word. Well, what do we know uh, about Mark or John Mark? Well, we know that he is a companion of Peter. Now, Peter is actually mentioned the most of all of Jesus' followers in Mark's Gospel. He's almost always there. Uh, it's almost as if we're, we're seeing uh, Peter's experience in Mark's Gospel. Uh, Mark's Gospel is the earliest of our Gospels, written somewhere between 50 and 60 AD, so when the eyewitnesses are still alive. Uh, and it's a biography of, of Jesus, a biography of Jesus, that's written not in a kind of theoretical sense, but in a real hard-hitting, action-packed, quick-paced style. Uh, one of Mark's favourite phrases is, and then, and then, and then. And he drives it on, it's action-packed. And what Mark is doing very cleverly by doing this is putting the person of Jesus in front of you again and again and again until it's impossible to be neutral. You have to work out who this Jesus is. You have to respond to who this Jesus is and what he's done. Now, Mark very cleverly also divides his gospel into two parts. Interestingly, corresponding to the way we've divided up Mark's gospel. Coincidence? Of course not. <laughs> the first half of the book, in chapters 1 to 8, really focuses on the big question of who is Jesus? His identity. And the second part of the book, from 9 to 16, focuses on what is Jesus' purpose? What is Jesus' mission? What did he come to do? And the first part of of the gospel finishes in chapter 8 with uh, Peter's final declaration. It seems, seems like Peter's got it right. Where Peter declares, when Jesus asks him, who, who do you say I am? He says, you are the Christ, God's promised King. 
And then Jesus will say, yes, you're right, but I've come to be a king who will die on a cross and be raised from the dead. And of course, Peter says, close, Jesus, but wrong. <laughs> In other words, he, he has his eyes half opened to the truth. He doesn't understand why the cross is necessary. It seems completely ridiculous because kings rule, they win, they're not killed. And so the second half is really an apology, an explanation on, well, why is this King Jesus coming to die? What does it mean to follow him as well if this is a king who dies on a cross and who's raised again? Because what we see in the second half of Mark's gospel is that Jesus takes up his cross and he calls us to do the same thing. What does it mean to take up your cross and follow me, says Jesus? Listen to chapters 9 to 16. And what we see is that the cross and glory are linked together. Two things that would seem about as far apart as possible are brought together cross and glory. And this key theme is introduced right at the beginning of chapter 9. Now, verse 1, he's saying, what happened to verse 1? Verse 1 is a bit like a hinge. It joins the two sections together. And what we see, first of all, in chapter 9 is the glory of Jesus' divinity. Now, in Mark 9, we read that what happens is Jesus takes Peter and James and John up a high mountain. By the way, this is not just uh, bushwalking or camping. It's a lovely day and so like, we should go up a mountain. No, no, if you know your Bible well, you will know that when people go up mountains, something big is about to happen. People meet with God on mountains. The most famous one, of course, is Moses going up the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, like that's, that's got to be in your, in your mind's eye as we read this story. Uh, one of the commentators says, mountains are the suburbs of heaven. They're not the inner city cool bit, right? They're not the inner city, Parkville, Brunswick, you know, close to God, but they're still there, right? The Mitchams, you know, sorry for those who are further east. This is no exception, by the way. What do we see? Well, we see Jesus radiating God's glory, uh, Moses is there, Elijah is there, God himself speaks from a cloud. What's going on? Well, we need to kind of remember what's happened on previous mountains. So if we go back to Exodus 33, when God speaks on Mount Zion to his people, oh, sorry, Mount Zionai to his people out of a cloud, Moses goes up the mountain, he begs to see God in all of his glory. He says, look, God, show me your infinite greatness who you truly are, your, your unimaginable beauty and power and holiness. But what Moses doesn't realize is that there's a huge problem in asking. And that is, if you want to see God in all his awesome glory, you don't live. Small price to pay, right? You cannot see God in his glory and live. So in God's grace, he actually hides Moses in a, in a cleft of a rock, in a cave. He covers him with his hand, and Moses sees the tiniest glimpse of God's glory. A smidgen. And his face glows, and he thinks, I'm about to die. Moses is not able to get even close to God's glory. But yet, he still reflects 
and is shaken by it. And hundreds of years later, here we are on another mountaintop. And once again, there is God's glory. Look at verse 3. Jesus' clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Uh, that whiteness and brightness is, is often is kind of a visual symbol of God's... It, it's so bright that you, you can't even comprehend it. And once again, there's a voice from a cloud. And even Moses makes the appearance in verse 4. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. We're not told what they were talking about. It'd be fascinating to ask, right? But what's really interesting is that Moses and Elijah are the only two people in the entire Old Testament who have an encounter with God on a mountain. The only two. Now, Moses, of course, is linked to the, the story of the Exodus, God's rescue of his people and the giving of the law. Uh, Elijah, of course, is a great prophet, but he was also associated with the day of the Lord. It was a day that the Jewish people looked forward to on the last day when the Lord would return, when God would return. And there would be a resurrection of all, uh, all, the, all of God's people and he, all things would be made right. And there's a great prophecy uh, in Malachi 4, Malachi 4.4, which says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Zion. Sinai, sorry. For all Israel, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so this, this passage would be sitting in the back of the disciples' minds as they see Elijah and Moses. Ah, the day of, is this the day of the Lord, maybe? But no, it's something else. Because two remarkable things happen on top of this mountain. Remarkable fact one... While Moses reflected the glory of God, as the moon reflects the brightness of the sun, Jesus here is actually the source of God's glory. It comes from Him. He is its source. God's glory, by the way, is the external manifestation of His being, His kingly rule, His presence. It literally means His weightiness or His heaviness. It is the terrifying revelation of God's character. It is magnificence. It is beauty. It is honor. It is majesty. It is splendor. It is power. It is brilliance. It is wonder. We don't have enough words to describe what glory is. And so whenever we, we read or speak of giving glory to God or glorifying Him, it's really important to note, we are not adding to God's glory, as if we could. It's a way of humbly recognizing and acknowledging that God is all-glorious. See, Jesus doesn't just point to the glory of God as Elijah and Moses had done, as all the other prophets had done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. Two things that seemingly can't fit together the glorious, terrifying, holy God and a human being. As Hebrews 1.3 puts it, the sun is the radiance of God's glory 
and the exact representation of his being. That is a remarkable fact in itself. The second remarkable fact is that Peter, James and John are in the presence of God and they don't die. They come down to, to tell us a story. You see, when God tells Moses that nobody can see my face and live, what God is reminding us there is that there is a, an infinite gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. Our, our humanity cannot endure the presence of God's perfect holiness and glory. You have a better chance of wandering into an active nuclear reactor, walking around, oh, that's interesting, that glowy bit, and walking out with no effects than you do of encountering the Holy God. This, by the way, explains why the disciples are so terrified in verse 6. Jesus is radiating the glory of God, and Peter, God bless him, uh, Peter is wonderfully, at the same time, massively overconfident and terrified, which is kind of Peter's MO throughout the whole gospel, by the way. It's a, wonderful, it's a wonderfully human, a human character. He says, it's, it's good for us to be here. He says, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> you can kind of imagine the, his voice cracking. But it says, like, they were terrified. He, he knows it's good, but he's terrified, and what do I do? And, and so what he decides to do is build three shelters. Now, did you read that and go, wow, that was a little unexpected? Uh, you're in the presence of Almighty, the Almighty and terrifying God, and you think, I know what we do, we put up some tents. <laughs> I'd be away camping, right, spending the night on the mountain. Like, it, does it seem like a random, is Peter out of his mind? Well, I actually think there's something a bit more uh, uh, quite profound going on here. The word tent is the same word as tabernacle. And after God's glory came down on Mount Zion, the Hebrew people built a tabernacle. Now, what, what is a tabernacle or a tent of meeting? It's a place where the priest would offer sacrifices to take away the sins of the people, to mediate the gap between sinful people and a holy and terrifying God. In other words, to protect them from a perfect God, people would do business with God in a tabernacle before they had the temple. And so Peter is saying, I think what he's saying is, look, we need some way of protecting us from the glory, the terrifying glory of God, from His presence. And so we should build a tent, one for each of the disciples, a place where we can meet with God and, and do business so that we can survive. And things get amped up in then in verse 7. Then we see a cloud of God's glory, it's overt, a cloud of God's glory covers them. The word there is literally overshadows them, envelops them. It goes from dazzling brightness to overwhelming, uh, almost darkness as this cloud descends upon them. And from within the cloud, God speaks. This is my son. Listen to him. The most holy and glorifying God declares who Jesus is. The big question of who Jesus is, remember that's been the kind of the background question of the first half. Here's the answer. Not Elijah, not one of the prophets, not Moses. God's son. 
It's been shown visually with, with bright, uh, blinding brilliance, and it's been declared audibly by the powerful uh, voice of God himself. And did you pick up an echo of something that had happened previously, if you kind of remember from season one? Right at the beginning of season one in Mark's gospel, the declaration, this is my son, at Jesus' baptism. But here we have an echo, but something changes. In his baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It's my father's favorite Bible verse. Um, (laughs) This says, glad someone got that. Uh, This is my son, declaration, and then a command. Listen to him. So the disciples are given instruction, which we'll see uh, will come out through the rest of the second half of Mark's Gospel. So Peter and James and John are in the terrifying presence of God and they don't die. And I think the answer is hinted at in Mark Y, verse 8. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. In other words, Moses has gone, Elijah has gone, And therefore, Jesus remains the bridge, the gap between sinful humanity and a perfect and holy God. Jesus is the tabernacle to end all tabernacles. He will be the priest to end all priests. He'll be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Because He is both the true and living God and a human being. Who else can bridge that gap? Who else can pay the price and the sacrifice? Who else can be the perfect priest? To step into that gap. No one else is qualified. And Mark is just hinting at it here. We'll see this kind of play out through the rest uh, of the gospel. But what this passage does remind us first and foremost is that Jesus is not safe. He's not confinable to a little box that, that you want to kind of set the agenda around. He's good, but, but he's not your mate or your buddy. In the words of Scripture, He is your Saviour and Lord. Lord means you listen to Him. Surprisingly, exactly what God has said. (laughs) He is full of terrifying glory. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? Today would be a great day to do it. (laughs) This is the one who made it. This is the one who made it. So what difference does that make as followers of Jesus? It means that He must be our first and our last. We must start with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are lots of voices in our our culture, in our community that will tell you what you should listen to. Follow your career, follow your heart. God says, listen to Jesus. Because if you're like me... It's naturally to start with, actually, myself. Listen to me. (laughs) Because I like to be the first, the centre. I like for the world to revolve around me. I like for me to be glorified. Lots of fun when you're glorified, isn't it? But we are not the first. We are not the one for whom the full glory of God resides. 
Everything is for Christ. Everything finds its purpose in Him. Everything was created for Him. Everything was created for Him, including you and me. Therefore, we are created to give glory and service to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to Him. That is the glory of Jesus' divinity. Well, secondly, we see in this passage the glory of Jesus' mission. See, Jesus' transfiguration is not just there to, to convince and show the disciples that Jesus is God, which it absolutely does, in, 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 there's no doubting that, but it also prepares them for their mission and tells us about Jesus' mission. And their mission will be to proclaim the life-giving message of the gospel, that the Lord Jesus, crucified and risen from the dead, is the defeater of evil, the giver of life, the forgiver of sins. That's their message that they're to take to the ends of the earth. If that's true, verse 9 is weird. It seems wrong. Look what it says in verse 9. Jesus gave them, uh, gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. Can you imagine how hard it would be to keep that a secret? You go up, just the three of you, the other disciples, oh, we didn't get to go on the camping trip. <laughs> God in all His glory, cloud, tents, the whole thing, terrified, come down. What happened? Can't tell you. <laughs> like that, that's got to be hard, right? Like I, I know we laugh at it, but to have an encounter with God and not tell anybody, that's... Why? Why would Jesus say that? It's because they won't understand properly what has gone on and what Jesus' mission is until after Jesus is raised from the dead. See, the transfiguration is a glimpse, a preview of both the resurrection of Christ and indeed His second coming. And in speaking of His resurrection, which He does throughout this passage, He's reminding His disciples of His mission, of why He's come. I am the Christ, I'm God's Son, I must suffer and die and be raised again. That's my mission, and your mission will be to tell people about it. In other words, it's to prepare them in part for that mission. And they won't get it yet. And it's clear from verses 10 and 11 that they don't get it yet. They're confused about what rising from the dead means. They're confused about Elijah who would, be, who would bring in the day of the Lord. Remember, in their worldview, the resurrection is on the day of the Lord when all the dead rise. But Jesus is talking about just himself being risen from the dead. By the way, just for uh, some quick clarification, Jesus is basically saying, look, John the Baptist is fulfilling that Elijah role. He makes that overt, by the way, in Matthew 17, if it seems a bit strange. But when we get to 2 Peter, written by the same Peter who's gone up the mountain, after the resurrection of Jesus, we, we realise he gets it and he has this mission to proclaim the good news. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. <coughs> Pardon me. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, we have seen... Jesus in all his majesty, both on the mountain, but more powerfully in his resurrection. And that's our mission as well. 
The Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, must be the centre of all we do at St Jude's Parkville. It's the heart of the message that we proclaim. If you're here at church for the first time, we hope that's kind of obvious. We'd love to talk to you further about why we think this person, the Lord Jesus Christ, both fully God and fully human, is just the most amazing and astonishing person ever who has come to save this world. We must not see anyone other than Jesus. That's our mission. Finally and thirdly, we see in this passage the location or context of Jesus' mission and ours. See, as soon as the disciples descend the mountain, uh, what doesn't happen is them holding hands as they come down, right, singing, shine, Jesus, shine, which I think was probably the only time you should be allowed to sing this song. <laughs> Sorry, that's an old, if you're above 40, you're laughing. If you're under 40, you're going, I don't understand the joke. Um, ask, ask an old person why that's funny. See, they've just had an encounter with Jesus in his glory. They've heard God speak. And what happens the very next moment? They come down the, uh, uh, the mountain, arguments, disbelief, and evil that is present and seemingly unstoppable. That's the very next thing. People are confused. People are doubting. People are suffering. It is a complete contrast to what has happened just a moment before where there is light and glory. Here there is no glory, but there is darkness and evil. Not the words of God, but the sounds of an argument. In other words, what is happening as soon as the, these disciples come off the mountain, they're placed into the context of their ministry and ours. See, their ministry won't be one mountaintop experience to the next, one religious high to the next. It will be down in the world with brokenness and darkness and sin. And it gives us the context for our mission. As Christians, what the Bible teaches us is that, that the Christian life is not one spiritual high followed by another spiritual high. Now, there are those beautiful moments of spiritual highs, and it can be a time in reading God's Word at a conference or singing, where, where you are just so struck by God's grace and glory, and you think, if only it could always be like this. That's not what we're taught in Scripture. We're not on the mountaintop, we're in the valley. That is both beautiful and broken a world that is turned from its creator. Therefore, if you're a follower of Jesus, expect challenges, indifference, antagonism, criticism. We are told to put on the armour of God. That tells you about the nature of, of the context of the ministry that we're involved in. And it's crucial that we remember that we rely not on our own experience but on Jesus' power. When in the second half of chapter 9, they're trying to work out why they couldn't uh, drive out this evil demon. In verse 28 we, we, uh, 28, we read that after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can only come out, uh, come out only by prayer. The implication being, the disciples weren't praying. 
They were attempting to drive out the demon in their own strength, not in God's strength. After all, man, they've just been up the mountain. They've seen the risen, you know, they all glorified Jesus. They've seen God speak. Kind of a big deal, right? See, Jesus' mission can be daunting. It can feel overwhelming. And we can think, what, what, what on earth can I do? I'm just one little person. And the answer is, for all of us, rely on God. Our vision and mission must be dependent on God, and that is most powerfully expressed when we pray. Because it says, God, we long for this, but we can't do this. We need your strength, and we need your power, and we need your grace. Help us. And the wonderful thing is that just the tiniest amount of trust goes a massive amount of distance because of who it is in. I love what the, the, the boy's father cries out to Jesus in verse 24. The, the boy's father is desperate, right? He just longs for his, his, his child to be healed. But he's riddled with doubts and he cannot muster the strength to, to uh, meet the moral and spiritual challenges. And so he cries out, uh, help me overcome my unbelief. But before that he says... I do believe. It's a very human moment. I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. I, I just, uh, I want to follow you, but I'm not sure how to, and how much can I? Uh, it's such an, on, uh, an honest human moment. And it's very clear, people are not saved by how big their faith is in, but who their faith is in. He's basically saying, Jesus, help me to see you only. I can see you, but there are all these other things. Help me just to see you, that, that, to know that you are the one who can provide healing and give literal life to my son, who looks dead after Jesus actually heals him, but he's actually alive. Seeing Jesus clearly. And what's really amazing, as we continue through the story of Jesus' life in Mark's Gospel, the moment where we actually truly see Jesus in all His power and glory is actually not on a mountaintop, but on a Roman cross. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God is displayed in a cross. Glory and crucifixion. Therefore, the crucified and risen Christ must remain the centre of all we do. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. I'm going to pray that we would do that. And then after that, we're going to stand and respond by singing, Only a Holy God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in this world, there are so many voices that call out, listen to me, listen to me, that claim salvation, 
Father, as we reflect on your word, may we see only Jesus. The crucified, resurrected, and glorified Son of God. May we see only him. And may we listen to him. Amen.